Hi, my name is Jacob Collins Brown, and this is UKBF Stories, where we are telling the story of small businesses across the UK and shining a spotlight on their journey. Today I'm with Tanisha Austin, who's the co-founder of Armchair Marketing. Hello, Tanisha. Hey. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. And today we're in your office. Uh, we're in your podcast studio uh, because not a lot of people know this, but uh, the UKBF Stories is recorded in this room. It is uh, indeed. set up, which it is, is really nice and uh, good vibes only for those who are watching this on the video. We've got good vibes only uh, fluorescent screen behind us. Um, so it's great. Thank you. So tell us, um, just to get started, a brief summary of what armchair marketing is. So armchair marketing started off as a like marketing consultancy, marketing agency, uh, predominantly for the automotive industry. So whether that is car dealerships or like classified websites like Autotrader, eBay Motors, um, if it involved cars, then they were the type of customer that we that we worked with. Um, but it also uh, then became a technology um, software as well. So uh, myself and my business partner, Lee, had an outrageous idea that we could make what we were doing as an agency, as a marketing consultancy, automated through software. So in the last two years, that's what we've kind of been building confidentially behind the scenes. We recently rolled that out to a select number of customers. And now we created the marketing software, MarTech, that does what we've been doing manually for years. We now have software that does a lot of that work for us. Excellent. Very good. And what, uh, what we'd start doing is we, uh, we've been coming here, myself, Jacob, um, recording podcasts here, recording some of our video content here, and the so we've, we've met in passing, and I never knew your story mm -hmm. and your um, business partner uh, put you forward and suggested that uh, you would make a great guest uh, for our podcast. And when I started looking in, and we had a brief conversation about your journey. Um, to entrepreneur, it's a great story. Um, so no pressure now. No pressure, no, no pressure at all. <laughs> March, but the uh, so really, I think um, we'd like to if we go back to your you was born. You're from Northampton. Mm -hmm. uh, so how if we paint a picture here? How was your school life? How how did your sort of awareness and sort of like journey through school go? So, as you said, born and bred in Northampton for my sins. Um, so I went to school in Northampton as well. Um, I didn't start off very smart, say. No. So I was one of the kids at school that struggled. Um, I really struggled with like my reading and writing. I was always in one of like the the lower sets, you know, where they give like extra support and always felt really stupid. Like I was so consciously aware, even at a young age, that I wasn't where all of the other children were and that I was kind of behind and that I was struggling. Um, and then I guess at some point that kind of just changed. It's a really cheesy, silly story where I remember at school 
the teacher was reading to us um, a Roald Dahl book, George's Marvelous Medicine. Like I still yeah. remember like the whole story to today. And um, it was one of the rare times the teacher was reading it out loud to us rather than us having to read ourselves. So I could actually just enjoy the storyline without the pressure of the fact I couldn't read it or understand what all those words were on the page. Um, and I fell in love with it. Like I was hooked and I needed to know like how this story would end. But it was the Christmas holidays, so school stopped. We never got to the end of the book. I didn't know what happened. Um, that bothered me like all Christmas holidays. So my mum bought me this book and I spent the rest of the Christmas holidays slowly, very, very slowly reading the rest of it to get to the end of it. And that for me changed everything because that was the moment that I just fell in love with books and with reading. So even though I was a really slow reader, I started to read a lot outside of school, started to kind of read pretty much all spare time. Like, um, And then from there, I just improved my reading, I guess, because I was spending so much time doing it, um, became better. Um, but also that improved other areas I struggled with, like my writing and my, my spelling. And then I kind of fell in love with learning, like as, as sad as that sounds. Um, from a young age, I kind of knew that I needed to like educate myself to like get out of the area that I grew up in. Grew up in quite like a not nice area of Northampton, um, kind of council estate, not, not the nicest area, the sort of area that if you walk on your own, you, you're going to get mugged. Like, <laughs> um, and that happened to you? Quite a few, a few times, times yeah, yeah, quite quite a few times in that area. Um, so not a nice area at all. Um, I don't know where I got where I got it from, but I just knew that I needed to kind of like educate myself to get out of that area and to change things. And then that belief of finally I can I can read and I'm a better reader started off that actually maybe I can learn other stuff that I'm also struggling at. But I always had to work like 10 times harder I wasn't one of those kids that I remember at school that was just like would turn up and gifted and like naturally really smart I always had to like revise 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 every single evening to to get to that point so yeah I didn't didn't start off like academic at at all at school no so. are, are you dyslexic I am yeah no. but I didn't find out I was dyslexic <clears throat> until like I was halfway through university like yeah. deep down, I think I always knew, like I struggled with reading. My spelling is still like atrocious to, to today. Like, thank God for like, you know, spell checkers online <laughs> and like Grammarly saves my life on a, a daily basis. Um, but yeah, I didn't find out until I was a lot older. So I found a lot of like, I guess, like hacks to try and like get better at exams, to pass exams and do what I needed, like different ways of doing things to, I guess, how yeah. everyone else was doing it. Um, so... You went from, as you said, like bottom sets mm -hmm. and really struggling mm -hmm. without any diagnosis or anybody saying you are dyslexic, mm -hmm. explaining. Uh, you grew up, if I be so blunt, I say thinking you was dumb. Yeah, sense. absolutely. Uh, alongside that, um, you, you effectively through hard graft and picking up from one book one story you wanted to know the end of you mm -hmm. sort of pushed yourself to learn to read and learn to write to improve your sets at the start of your sort of high school era is it fair to say you wasn't destined for passing your GCSEs at any sort of notable level no I think by the time I got to that point I was in I went from primary school being at bottom sets and then 
I did middle middle school and then upper school. So I kind of at some point halfway through middle school that kind of changed yeah. and I started by the time I went to secondary school was in the top top sets, got pretty good grades, was expected to get really good GCSEs, expected to get really good A levels and then found myself actually struggling with that pressure of the expectation when you kind of get those, you know, oh you're expected to get to get those A's, yeah. to get those B's and not go into a good school where the grades were probably quite low as an average at that school. The teachers would add a lot of pressure on onto I guess me and other students that were expected to get those good grades because yeah. you know to bring up their average and to make the school look look better. So at that point there was I guess that expectation that I would get get good grades. And then when you got to sort of your end of your upper school, mm-hmm. um, the you then went to university, but you didn't have um, the encouragement at home, is it fair, to yeah, go to, to uni- university? Yeah, yeah I, I nearly didn't go to university. I remember it being like the deadline week that we had to like all submit our applications. I had that really nervous wobble of, oh, I don't think I'm smart enough. I'm not good enough. Um, what if I don't get the grades to get in? I was really scared of failure. I was scared of applying and then being told I hadn't got in or um, what felt worse, being told that I'd got in but then not getting those grades and then kind of letting everyone down and disappointing. And I remember going home and saying that and saying, oh, I don't think I can. I'm thinking that maybe I won't go to university and I'll skip it. And I was kind of encouraged that maybe that was a safer route, not applying, not going to university, um, rather than encouraged that, no, you can do it. It will be fine. And, you know, give it your best shot. And even if you don't get in, you'll be fine. Um, So I nearly didn't apply. And then luckily I had... I applied the day of the deadline, so in the afternoon, not even in the morning, like pretty close to that deadline. And luckily I had a teacher that said, apply, what's the worst that can happen? You can do it, your grades are really good, you can get in. And she kind of said to me, apply, and even if you decide not to go, at least you have the option, let's put in the application form. And she kind of convinced me and said, like, you, you can do it. And she sat with me, kind of completed the form, made sure I got it in time and submitted it. And then I went home and said, I've, you know, I've submitted the application to university, I'm, I'm going. And wasn't wasn't met with the best best support when I'd done that. I was kind of like, oh, you know, you, you're going to go away, you're going to move away, and kind of, I guess, my family wanted to keep me close and didn't like the idea that I would I would end up maybe travelling away and going away for university. But luckily, I got that application literally in just just in the nick of time, really. And it was I'm quite relieved that I did manage to get into university because in all honesty that application probably wasn't that great it was very rushed <laughs> like it's a, it's a miracle that someone read that and thought let's give this girl a girl a chance and the um <clears throat> your your you was living at home with a single mum yes um, yeah any brothers and sisters yes one brother one brother yeah um and what was your um mum's ambitions for you then really what did when if you if you think from there um you're you're saying you know you didn't really have that sort of Mm. um encouragement to go for it go for it go for it um what did you get i guess i didn't have the best like household growing up um so for most of like my upbringing it was just me my mum and brother at home and um occasionally 
like my dad would be on the on the scene, but very very rarely um, he would be there. I think my mum. So my mum was pretty much a single mum. She had me quite quite young, and also my brother was diagnosed with autism, so he really struggled at, struggled at school, but also was quite um, trouble troublesome. Got himself in a lot of a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, was very well known at school for not being well behaved and getting into trouble. And teachers were always shocked that we were related because I was quiet and good grades, and he was very noisy, not good grades at all. The polar, the polar opposite. So I guess the only expectation on me is that I'd be quiet, well behaved, and cause no problems. And as long as I ticked those boxes, like everyone at home was happy. Um, I think because my mum hadn't gone to university when she was young and by the time I was applying for university I guess my mum at that same age would have been pregnant with me so really different um I guess life to the one that I was I was going off for and I think that everyone at home was nervous that if I went off to university that I would find this new glamorous life of people that were educated really smart and you know more financially well off than we were and that maybe I just would never come back and that I would just move on to this new glamorous life and um, that that would change who, who I was and I guess they're right it did it did change me but I think for, for the better because I kind of learned more about myself what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be and I guess that sometimes I think my family was afraid that that they would lose me in doing that. But so instead of encouraging me to spread my wings, that cheesy saying, and to yeah. learn, learn who I was, it was, I guess, safer for them if I just, I guess, stayed at home and didn't, didn't do that. So I didn't get the best, best encouragement. Okay. And when you say your dad was sort of on and off the scene, yeah. I'm, um, I'm uh, painting a picture in my head of somebody that uh, wasn't around a lot. Yeah. Um, Fair to say, probably not not an inspirational. No, 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 not at all. You know those like those classic funny stories that people say about your know, absent father that says he's going to go and buy a pint of milk and disappears for six months. That was that was him. That right. was very. Okay. Um, it, it's funny because people talk about that story, but he he really did that. Would go to the shops and then just not come back for six months. Right. Um, he gave me more emotional trauma than inspiration but I guess in a weird way that inspired me that I wanted more and wanted a different life so weirdly not a nice man and not someone that anybody would look up to and a terrible father can't think of how you could be a worse father than he was but that actually inspired me to be like to, I guess to have a different life and to do better for myself so I guess weirdly need to thank him for inspire, inspiring me so I guess weirdly yeah. he was inspiring but just not in the way that anyone would hope or want to be inspiring more of a um, pushing away than pulling <clears throat> yeah um, sort of pulling you to good things yeah yeah absolutely um, the emo bringing giving you nothing but emotional trauma is um, um, quite an expression to use there um, I don't know how much one you know, to go into that, but is that, um, what are we talking? It was an abusive household. Yeah. Um, it was a sexually abusive household. So I, I struggled growing up. Um, that obviously had a lot of like lifelong consequences in terms of like trauma and defining who I am now. 
So that's something that that I struggled with. I struggled with for for many many years. I um, struggled with even when I started this business, my own self belief that I could I could be something and that I could do it and that I was I was good enough was something that I really really struggled with. Um, and I had to overcome come a lot, but I think that it's weird because when I was on that journey for kind of recovering from a lot of that trauma, I would hear people say that oh, it makes you stronger and you can grow from that trauma and you'll be a stronger person. And I always just thought that was nonsense. I was like, how can something so horrible that I'm struggling to cope with make me stronger? I was like, that just feels like a really cheesy thing that people say to make you feel better. But then to get to the other side and get to where I am and now in life, I can sit here and say, no, it really did make me stronger because you, you have to really look at yourself and you have to really look at all of the things that you're struggling with and in a way not, not get over them because you don't, you don't get over things that happen in your life, but learn to cope with them and to learn to deal with them. And now I think as a result, I'm quite good at dealing in stressful situations and I'm, I'm quite good at standing back and processing how I feel about a situation and actually now in comparison at work on a daily basis it's quite difficult for something to happen at work that I find quite stressful because nothing was really that stressful in comparison to dealing with that sort of like childhood trauma so I think it has definitely made me a made me a stronger person um but also means I do have challenges that sometimes that I will I will struggle and things are slightly slightly harder than someone that had a different a different upbringing but I guess by doing a lot of therapy and um, talking about it a lot and kind of looking at the things that I've struggled with realize that actually everybody has some sort of trauma and everybody struggles with things and that actually that that's more normal than I thought it was and that now I've realised that even people that had the best upbringings and the best childhoods have things that they struggle with. And I've kind of spent ages thinking I was abnormal and that I would struggle in business as a result. And now I realise that everybody has quite similar challenges and quite similar difficulties. Um, but because I didn't have a good childhood, I was forced to address them and to look at them. And I think that's probably made me easier to deal with those challenges than, than perhaps some other people. And going to, you know, that teacher helping you put that application into university, giving you that support in the school that was missing from home, Mm -hmm. gave you that opportunity and college did open up a new world to you. It did, And did show you that perhaps um, what was almost normalised in home isn't normalised and you can see a, a, a different future in front of you. Yeah. So how was uh, university? It was like I own them. It felt like a whole new world. I'd kind of lived in this bubble of Northampton, the way that my home life was. And I didn't go far to university, I only went to Coventry, so a whole hour away from Nor- Northampton. Far <laughs> but far enough. And it... It was new people and a completely new new way of life. Um, I just remember kind of turning up and meeting the new, these new people and I'm thinking, oh my God, everyone is so confident and they're so sure of who they are and themselves. And I felt so quiet and 
shy and I just fell in love with university so quickly because I felt so independent and free and I was able to go where I wanted and do what I wanted and I didn't have to think about kind of the strict household that I'd come from of like curfews and like sharing where I was all of the time and all of a sudden I could just do what I wanted and eat what I wanted, go where I wanted. And that meant far too many late nights, far too many hangovers, um, eating far too much food that wasn't good for me. I probably didn't eat a single vegetable or piece of fruit the whole time I was at university. Um, but it was great for me because I figured out who I was and I got that chance to, I guess, be a teenager, to live, let my hair down and kind of but also at the same time learn a lot from university kind of get the grades I needed to be able to get a job when I graduated and going through university that's where you discovered your passion of what you enjoy doing yes which is uh, so marketing um, is but I, so I didn't study marketing at university I studied journalism and English um, I thought I wanted to be a writer I was absolutely adamant I was like I love writing um, at one point I wanted to be a political correspondent. I was like adamant. I was like, I love politics. And I was like, I really want to write about like the juicy stuff that's happening in the world. Um, I really thought, I was like, I'm going to be an undercover reporter. I'm going to be the real pure journalist. And then I went to university and I found it boring. Like just writing articles and every single day, I was like, "This is not, this is not for me. This is not the glamorous, fun lifestyle that I thought it would be." And realizing that a lot of the time it's just research behind a computer, and it's not not as glamorous or fun as I thought it would be. Um, but I remember at university we had to learn things like PR, social media, kind of like copywriting, and I was like, "I enjoy all of this way more than I enjoy like the traditional journalism." But I had no idea that all of those things were marketing. So I left university, I graduated, and I was kind of like searching on, like on Indeed, and I was searching for jobs online. And I was just putting in things like social media jobs or kind of like uh, copywriting jobs or writing jobs. Or, and I was putting in all of these things. And then at one point, this job for a marketing exec came up. And I clicked onto the job description and I read it. And I was like, oh, my God, that's it. I was like, that covers all of the things that I enjoy doing. There's a job out there that covers it all. I don't have to choose a bit of social media or a writing job. I can actually do a job that does all of that. Um, and then I, from there, I just started searching purely for marketing jobs. And I was like, this is it. This is me. Just no one had told me that all of those things that I enjoy doing and all of the things I wanted to do actually came under that marketing umbrella. So it just took me a little, a little while to figure it out. And then I got my first marketing job and I was like, this is it. I'm not going back. Marketing is the thing that, that I love doing. Yeah. And the whilst you was at university, you did some volunteering work at grads.co.uk. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was sort of, well, volunteer marketing for a part yeah. of time. And then um, you got, I'd say, first real job to <laughs> quotes. Um, but you thought you'd um, thrown the interview did yeah so I I went for two interviews that day and it was the the job I ended up getting was the the second interview of the day and I I turned up and I, I kind of went in and they they asked me loads of questions and I remember they showed me this advert in the interview and were like what do you what do you think of it and I and I pretty much said that this advert sucked right like I said all of the reasons I thought this advert wasn't was it any one of good. their adverts 
Um, it turned out it was, and they said, and I thought, oh no, I've really messed this up. And I was like, Tanisha, you know nothing about marketing yet. You still need to learn. And there you are telling this company that their adverts suck. I'm like, what have you done? Like, you've completely like messed up this this whole interview. Anyway, it turns out they deliberately showed me an advert that they had never published that did suck to see whether, one, I would be honest about it, but also if I had an idea of how, how I would improve it and what I would do to make it, make it better. So luckily, by sharing my honest opinion with it, was exactly what they were looking for. But I didn't know that at the time. It wasn't until I left and I got a phone call, probably like 20 minutes after I left that interview. And I remember I left and my friend picked me up and they were like, oh, how did it go? And I was like, it's awful. Like, I've not, I've not got the job. I was like, that's a terrible interview. Um, I was really nervous. I was just like stumbling. I forgot like the basic answers of things that I should have known. And I was just so nervous. And then I got this phone call and I was still in the car on the way home offering me the job. And I tried to be like really calm and call collective and be like, oh, thank you very much. And, but deep down, I was like so excited. I was like, yes, like I've done it. I've got the job. But also it was the job that I wanted. I'd gone to a few interviews and they were all very much, you know, marketing exec jobs, but 90% making tea and coffee and a little bit of like actual you know, marketing work. And then there was this job. And in the interview, they explained the role. And I was like, oh, my God, sounds amazing. I'm going to learn so much. It's really, like, hands-on. And everything they said that I would be doing, I thought, I don't know how to do any of that. But I want to learn, so this sounds great. Um, so when they called, I was, like, really, really happy. Yeah. The, the way you describe that, uh, you have a real thirst for knowledge, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I try. Like, I like to learn. Um, like anybody, I struggle when sometimes when it's something I don't know the answer to. No one likes to feel stupid. Um, but my business partner, Lee, like, always kind of encourages me to make mistakes and to fail because you learn through failing by doing something that you, that you don't know. And kind of, I'm lucky that I've had a lot of people around me, like in particular in the last few years since having the business, that have taught me that it's okay not to know the answer to everything. And to reminded me, I guess, that first knowledge that I had at university that was very much, I don't know the answer, so I need to figure it out. And I've had to learn that since starting the business. I've found myself in that position again of, I don't know how to do that. I don't know the answer, so I'm going to have to figure it out. Yeah. We never stop learning. No, we never, never. never. <laughs> so you was at Perry's for four years, mm -hmm. and there was a lady there who really inspired you, and I'd say sort of took you under a wing a bit, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, the HR director. Uh, tell us a bit about her and sort of how she helped you. Yeah, so uh, Julia, the HR director, um, the the company, automotive company, so very like male dominated company. So uh, one of the only uh, female directors um, at the time in the company. So it was really inspiring to have a female director to be able to kind of look up to as a young woman kind of coming into the industry fresh out of university um, but also she kind of taught me a lot in terms of about hiring recruitment and I was only a marketing exec at the time so I didn't have kind of any say or any role when it came to kind of HR or recruitment or hiring more people into the team um, but she kind of brought me under her wing, taught me a lot in terms of like how to hire people, how to find the right people, but also involved me in some of the interview processes. So for the last couple of people that we that we hired while I was there, she brought me into those interviews so that I could ask questions, so that I could kind of sit in and kind of watch her 
watch her process, but also involved me in terms of some of those internal conversations after those interviews and kind of how they were vetting who was and who wasn't a good good fit or good hire for the company. And that was obviously then when later on kind of set up this business, they were really useful, useful skills, but also just very much empowered me and very much made me feel like actually you know what I maybe I can manage a team one day maybe I can do this and actually maybe I can learn learn more about some of these other areas of of business that I didn't know anything about at the time so I'm very thankful thankful to her and um not only for you know her good fashion sense and we talk a lot about shoes and fashion at the time as well but also for actually you know teaching me a lot about kind of hiring and recruitment and how that worked we've had a a few um you know strong successful uh, women on this podcast so far and one comes to mind immediately uh shalom lloyd mm-hmm. so uh, she runs naturally tribal skincare and emc and there, she uses the term pass on the baton uh, for empowering women. Nice. The, it's, it's been a journey for me having some of these conversations, listening uh, to women in business and how important do you feel it is? And, and also, actually, what would you say to other women in business about supporting each other as well and bringing, um, passing on the baton to others coming through in business? Uh, it's one I, I love that saying about passing on the baton. Um, um, that's a hard, hard question because I feel somewhat slightly, slightly torn. Yeah. I almost don't want to give any guidance or advice that is about being a woman in business because I almost want to say that don't think about it. Like it doesn't matter that you're a woman. What do you want to do? Um, go out and do it because we're so fortunate in this country that you can pretty much do anything that you can dream of. Like the, the education is there, the knowledge is there. Go, go take it, go do it. If, you, if you're passionate enough and you're hungry enough, then it's there to do, whether you're kind of male, female, like regardless of kind of gender, then, the, you know, it's there for the taking if, like, if you're hungry enough or if you want it. But then, you know, as a, as a woman in business, I also recognise that it's not that easy and that actually sometimes you do very much feel that you are a woman and you do feel that sometimes that maybe is a, whether it's an advantage or disadvantage, it's certainly different. So I guess I just think it's important as a, as a woman to be there as a confidant to other women coming into, into business, but also to... I guess to share the knowledge of things that you've that you've learned when you know my first job I was shy and I was quiet and I perhaps didn't speak up to things that were kind of you know inappropriate comments and things that were said in the workplace that now I recognize that if someone said to me I would kind of shut down quite quite quickly because I've gained that confidence in the workplace that I but I didn't have that when I first started. But I was really lucky to have not just strong, powerful women like Julia, the HR director, around me, but also to have men that were confident enough to say that's not appropriate. And Lee, who's my business partner now at the time, would would very much kind of stop anyone that would say anything that was inappropriate or make any jokes in the workplace and made me feel really kind of strong and empowered. So I think it's really important to do that for young generations of women coming into business is to make sure that we just create a 
workplace that is not only safe but also where somebody can feel comfortable comfortable and confident like regardless of regardless of gender and I think that that's really important but I don't think that's a something for just women I think that's something that anybody can do I you know as I say, was lucky enough to have a manager, Lee at the time, who took that took that role and kind of would make sure that he kind of anything that was said that was inappropriate, or he he would resolve, and that made me feel safe to understand that that's not not appropriate and that's not something as a woman I should just take and accept in the in the workplace. I don't so I don't think it has to just be women that kind of empower those young women coming forward. I think it can be it can be anybody that that does that. I find your um, answer to that really interesting and not quite what I expected. Okay. But it's a really interesting perspective in that because my take on what you're saying is it's more of a cultural thing in behaviour. So um, I've never worked in automotive, mm -hmm. but I, um, I have this perception, and you kind of alluded it to earlier, it's very male-dominated. Mm -hmm. And um, a very male-dominated environment will have a particular culture. Um, or can have a particular culture. Let me put it that way. <laughs> the um, having a strong woman in that environment um, from the outside, I would perceive as be very good in that she's. Um, I'll use this term I said earlier, like taking taking you under a wing. Whether that's right or <laughs> not, I might be incorrect in that terminology. Um, perhaps and do correct me if I'm wrong. That you know helped you develop your confidence. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that you also had male colleagues around yeah. there that were also um, passing on the baton and mm -hmm. supporting you. And as you were developing from a young person, just sort of out of unit, mm -hmm. university and building up your confidence. So, yeah, I, I find that an interesting answer where you're talking about the cultural side mm -hmm. more than just it's men or women. Yeah. So, whilst I've got you here, are you running your own or have a keen interest in small business? then UKBF is here for you. Visit ukbf.co.uk and become part of our vibrant community to meet other like-minded business owners and tap into a wealth of expertise and experience to help your business thrive. Now, back to the story. I think even, even to today, I find that um, both men and women that I find inspiring around me have the have that ability to kind of I guess pave the way and set the groundwork where women feel comfortable in the in the workplace and only a couple a couple of years ago I had had an incident where um, a customer sent me this inappropriate text message and I had that horrible moment where it comes through and you think oh geez like how am I going to deal with this you know like how how do I deal with this in a way that is both professional but also is really firm to say this is not appropriate and this is not the way that we're going to communicate and actually one of the people that helped me in that situ situation was was another man that he was you know something that he was passionate about that this is not acceptable this is not not okay and you know he's a, one of the you know leaders in the industry um phil jones who's head of ebay motors and you know he I had a phone call with him and he kind of gave me guidance and advice on how how i could deal with that and that's as as a very well respected man in the industry when women are able to speak to him about that and he can guide and advise advise that's i think really 
invaluable because it doesn't have to come from another another woman. It just has to come from someone that is empathetic, understands that that's not acceptable, but also somebody that's very business savvy so can guide you from a business perspective of how to deal with that in a way that is is I guess professional but also more importantly in a way that makes you feel empowered and makes you feel like actually you're setting your own boundary for what what you will and won't accept in in the workplace so I'm I'm very fortunate to have had a lot of men and women around me be able to kind of I guess inspire me but also help and support from from that perspective because as you said automotive industry is very male dominated industry there are a lot of perceptions about about the industry and about I guess um, how people would behave in that industry and you know some some of it true I guess but a lot of it not and there are a lot of senior male leaders in that industry that want to pave the way for for women and are doing a really good job at that you know people like Lee my business partner people like Phil but also not just in in the UK so one of our customers is Auto Trader in South Africa and their CEO is a man called called George George Minnie and I find him really inspiring because he helps other women within his company I guess to create that foundations where women are able to sit at a director level and are able to sit around that around that board table and creates a really good environment where it doesn't matter if you're male or female you know if you have the knowledge if you have the skill set and you're able to do that job then you know you're you are the person for for that role so i think that perhaps in an industry that is very male dominated like the automotive industry it needs men like that to pave the way and to make the change so that women i guess are able to pass pass on that baton they have to be yeah. in that in that seat in the first place to be able to pass that on and um in some some companies and some industries it needs the men that are, you know that are in that seat to do that um to actually make make that change first yeah and um, i would the we're talking about um women empowerment and sort mm -hmm. of career progression for women but the words you just used just a moment ago um for the gentleman from south africa auto trader south africa mm -hmm. it says if you're in if you've got the skills to do the job mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter and the for me personally so anybody who knows me says that i massive champion for um, SEND, so special needs, mm -hmm. learning difficulties and em empowering people with various uh, mental or physical um, ailments, disabilities, um, to get them into meaningful employment is the term we use. And the, you can put, you know, I would say you can put that across anything, whether it's um, ethnic diversity, sexual diversity, um, um, SEND diversity, if you're the right person for the job, you've got the skills to do it, then you're the right person for the job. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a firm believer of that. I'm not, I'm not sure that setting yourself a target of saying I need to hire more women or I need to hire, you know, more kind of ethnic diversity or something like that um, necessarily solves the problem. I think it's useful. I think that sometimes some companies need to set those targets to force people to think about change. But I think it comes from a mentality of actually just helping anybody achieve. And if you if you do that and you focus on actually are we doing enough as a company to make anybody feel comfortable, like regardless of who they are, regardless of their background, regardless of gender, race, religion, disabilities, whatever that is, make anybody feel 
comfortable, then to a certain, certain degree that you'll tick those boxes off diversity naturally because you're creating an environment where anybody feels like they can, they can flourish. Yeah, I'd probably say the only time a ticket, like um, a target helps is if there, if there is a risk of, and I'll just say risk of, I suppose, is mm -hmm. subconscious bias. Yes, yeah, the, of course. Uh, it's, um, if, there's, if the organisation is safe, knowledgeable and aware there is not a subconscious bias, mm -hmm. they've overcome that, mm -hmm. then the targets don't even become... Yeah. An issue, yeah. but, but if there is some, if there is a an issue of subconscious bias going on within an organisation, then having a target focus the minds. But exactly as you're alluding to there, it gives the, it then sometimes can lead to the wrong person being mm -hmm. hired for the wrong reason. Yeah, and I guess the target highlights a problem as well, doesn't it? So yeah. when you kind of sometimes look at the numbers of a company and you realise actually there's not that many women, or if there are women, they're certainly not of like a senior management or kind of um, higher level, um, or actually we just don't have that much diversity kind of across across our employees, highlights the problem so that somebody can can consciously fix that and look at well, why isn't that? Why aren't? Is it a matter that we're not attracting those people to want to apply for the job, or is it a wider problem that when they're joining, that for some reason they're not feeling comfortable enough to to stay in that company, and that at least allows people to to fix that? So I, I agree that it's it's really useful, um, but it, I guess I've kind of always want to believe that I'm being hired for a role based on my skill set and being best for that role not because a company wants to tick a box and it's like oh it's really great that we've put a woman in that in that seat um, although I agree that it's useful to have to have those targets. So we're moving um, through Paris <laughs> and then after four years if I remember mm -hmm. correctly the that's when you first made the leap into starting your own business. Yes. Yeah. Um, with your current boss at the time mm -hmm. um, within Perry's. Yes. And that's when Armchair um, was born. Mm -hmm. How did that decision come about? And what was that sort of transition, sort of those periods of months from going from, you know, um, boss and um, member of the team uh -huh. to business partners and starting up Armchair? Yeah. So uh, at the time I was like 2016 we started armchair marketing so i had just turned 24 so still still very young and uh, myself lee and a couple of other people that joined us at the time had 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 conversations for a long time about maybe kind of starting a business or doing something kind of outside of perry's and it started off as something really small we'd all come back from this marketing conference feeling very like inspired like oh, you know we can go away and we can do something great that maybe kind of just in the evenings and at the weekends that we would kind of start something and we had this funny idea of setting up like this e-commerce online store so we could kind of test our marketing and see actually maybe we could use some of this marketing skill set to make I guess make money for ourselves and sell something online and I remember at the time that um, finding this niche that uh, loads of people were searching for like baby car seats online but there wasn't a lot of competition for people advertising baby car seats so I remember saying oh my god maybe we can sell like car seats online um, like an absurd silly idea but it was a car journey like a three hour kind of car journey home where we we're all just I guess saying and coming up with silly ideas for what we could do and then somehow that 
absurd conversation turned into a serious conversation of actually, you know, maybe we could set up a, a marketing agency and we could do what we're what we're doing ultimately for Perry's, but we could do for more automotive companies. Um, and we, we then we took that quite seriously. We handed in a notice, left left Perry's, um, and at the time there were four of us that left. So from day one, we had quite a hefty hefty wage bill with mm. with four of us. So no customers, absolutely no money, but four wage bills to pay. And, you know, Lee and I obviously we knew there was a chance that we we weren't getting paid that first month and. Um, at 24, I had no money, so I, I don't know how I was going to make that work. But I guess with just pure passion and enthusiasm that we could do it, um, took the leap, made the jump, handed down our notice. And then luckily in that kind of one month notice period that we had, we managed to find enough customers to pay the wage bill, yeah. um, to get our first office and to make a profit. So we made profit from, from month one and man managed to make that work um, and then it was I guess a start of a big a big learning journey like you said Lee went from being my boss and my manager to all of a sudden being my business partner so there was that change in dynamic where all of a sudden we were agreeing all things kind of together and figuring out how it could work together um, but luckily you know Lee and I had worked together at that point for four years so we had a really good working relationship already um, Lee was a really good manager, so he was never one of those managers that would just veto and be like, it's my way or the highway, so that's how we're doing it. So he always worked as a team. So weirdly, although he was my manager, we were very used to working together as a team and kind of figuring out how we were going to tackle a problem and how we were going to do something. So in a weird way, not much changed because we were just, I think we were, we were a good team and we, we, we were used to working, working together anyway. Um, I guess it was just a slightly more of a, you know, learning curve on both fronts because, you know, Lee had also, you know, setting up a business like this for the first time. So we we're both in a position where we didn't really know what we were doing sometimes and we we're both figuring it out together. But, you know, we, we have very different skill sets that complement each other nicely, which meant that as I guess founders of this business we both quite naturally gravitated to doing different things that the business needed and finding I guess our own departments and our own areas that we could kind of flourish so Lee is kind of really good at kind of storytelling and explaining to customers what we're going to do how it's going to work and getting them really excited and really passionate about kind of how we're going to improve their marketing um, I'm more numbers, so I'll put numbers behind that and I'll come in and say, well, this is what you're doing at the moment. These are what the numbers, you know, could look like if we work together, but then also working out the financial side of the, the business as well. So quite lucky that our skill sets complemented each other and it kind of like over six years of the business, we've kind of, I guess, naturally gravitated towards different areas of the business and and made that made that work. I think people expect it to have been harder and stranger than it was to go from him being my manager to business partner but weirdly that felt quite that felt quite natural because I also recognized that he had more experience than me so I was quite happy even though we were business partners to to look to him for guidance and advice and to ask ask questions but then also likewise he would do the same with me when there was an area that he he didn't know and we had a lot of mentors outside of the business to help us as well and answer questions and and give us knowledge, but it was a whirlwind. It was 
to take you, that um, leap. <laughs> it's uh, having gone from nothing to profit in your first month is phenomenal. Mm. Uh, what I find really impressive about that part is you've very quickly um, got some really key plays. I mean, I know you've got a meeting going on there because there's usually an Aston Martin, a Ferrari, <laughs> and all these yeah. sort of like cars in the car park on the industrial. The Our estate customers have here. very nice cars. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so we always know Armchair's got a meeting because it's you can probably got half of the na nation's <laughs> debt in vehicle value parked in the car park. Um, the when you're sort of coming into starting a business, getting into sort of the um, sort of the legals of it, mm -hmm. was it a, and I'm going to use the term leap of faith of literally just launching out there, create a company online or whatever it might be, uh -huh. and boom, we're just going to go for it. Or was there a sort of a, like a business plan written, um, financial forecasts, um, marketing uh, strategy, was there like all that documentation put together of a, documented plan to launch or did you just do it so if you'd asked me this when we started the business i would have said yes we have a business plan as we know we have our forecast we know what we're doing now six years on when we've written an actual business plan for how we're going to launch like the software and technology that we've created i look back at the plan that we had and i'm like that wasn't a business plan tanisha that was you know some ideas and thoughts about how you might might launch launch a business so i thought i thought we had a really good plan um we didn't i think the business started based on like pure determination and the desire and belief that we could make it work and that passion drove us to you know, luckily making it work. And when it came to starting the business and actually creating the business itself, um, none of us had any idea what we were doing. We tried to fill out, you know, all of the paperwork for Companies House and submit that. And the first time it got, like, disapproved. Like, we'd completed something, like, entirely wrong. Uh, it got disapproved. And I remember we had this first customer and we needed to get them to sign the contract and we needed to send that first invoice and we were all in a panic because we're like, oh my God, it's got disapproved and we've kind of, we've already got business and we need to actually get it all signed properly and, you know, we've not even got the business actually, paperwork finalised and completed. Um, and then we actually used one of your tools to get all it right. done. So um, paid, um, used the tool, um, did that and then within the space of an hour had a business all set up and fine. I remember thinking, oh my God, I wish I'd known about this like the first time because we'd spend like days completing all of this paperwork and kind of figuring out what does that question even mean? Like how do we how do we submit that for it to get disapproved and then use your software and then it was approved within an hour and I was like, oh my God, that's so much easier. Like, <laughs> so you actually set your company up through one of business data. Yes. Yeah. No, clients. absolutely. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Um <laughs> And then when we moved to this business, business park, I actually remember saying to Lee when we saw you guys on a sign saying, oh, that's what we used to set up the business. We actually used, used that tool. Wow. <laughs> I never knew that. At yeah. All. So the um, so through you know, using some really easy software. Very easy. Software. Yeah. Uh, recommend it to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> you, set the, you set the company up. What about um, the, now I, I, I'm almost cringing myself asking this question because it's like asking a couple that have only just got married, did you put a prenup in place? <laughs> but the um, um, sort of shareholders agreements mm -hmm. or um, um, sort of contracts between the business founders yourselves, yeah. is that something that um, was on your radar or, or put in place or not? 
Um, kind of. We we had a very rough and ready Word document that outlined how it was going to work, um, what it what it would look like, and kind of outlined you know who was going to have what shares and kind of like under what agreement we might kind of have to like hand those shares to kind of each other and what that would look like. Very rough and ready, not written by a lawyer, but just something that Lee and I were happy with and that would work. Um, in all honesty, we kind of set the business up on pure trust. We didn't feel like we needed it. We still, you know, operate on a lot of a lot of trust. The difference being now is that now that obviously there's value in the business, and now that we've built this technology and there's kind of you know a significant amount of value in the business, we are going through the process of actually having lawyers draft things up properly so that we can finalize and agree that properly. I guess when we started the business, it was worth nothing, right? That at the time thinking, why would we need to pay for a solicitor, for a lawyer to draft up all of this paperwork and figure out what happens, you know, if, you know, there's a dispute or if we can't agree on something, it didn't feel needed. It was trust and that, that worked perfectly for six years. It, it got us what we needed. But now we're looking to kind of bring other people into the business and we we recognise the need to formalise that. You know, if less so for Lee and I, because I think we can we still have a really good working relationship, can operate on trust, but we recognise that that's not not the mature business thing to do, but that would also make anyone else coming into this business feel really nervous. That, you know, what actually if that doesn't work one day and we can't agree, what what happens, you know, how does how does that work? So we are we are in the process of drawing all of the all of that fun legal um, legal stuff up properly. To be honest, I was expecting you to go, we just did it. Because <laughs> that is what nearly every business partnership does. Mm-hmm. When um when we see questions come into the UK business forums community about partnerships, the what then um if a, if something should ever happen, um that's usually when people come along onto an online community and say, Help. Um they've never got an agreement in place. So even mm-hmm. having something that is documented that you've just agreed between the two mm-hmm. yourself, you are light hit years ahead of so many um, small business, startup businesses going into partnerships. So I wasn't even expecting you to have anything. <laughs> but it's, it, it's interesting that you're now at the stage of you know, re- expanding the business, looking at um, sort of potentially bringing in other investors and uh, or shareholders in, and it's sort of all coming to a sort of mm-hmm. ahead now and you're looking at that stage now yeah. of formalizing it which is a fantastic story in itself actually reaching that stage you've answered the other question about where you've sort of agreed the roles and when all that came together i think um sort of bringing it to where you are now now it's worth mentioning uh, for anybody listening who heard you know know the story and sort of the young uh, girl struggling in the early part of school mm-hmm. struggling uh, with dyslexia and confidence i've seen videos of you on stage talking <laughs> the um you've come on a huge um in leaps and bounds mm. um pushing yourself outside of your comfort comfort zone and i would go so far as to say the getting away from the environment that you grew up in and having that as a driving force behind you um, to something to push you forward mm-hmm. um, has given you an energy that, you know, it will continue to push you forward. How will you know when you've made it? Oh, 
what a what a good question that is. Um, I'm not sure I ever will. I think my version of made it keeps changing as I learn and develop. I think if you had asked me at 20, like, how will you know if you've made it? I probably would have described maybe a situation I'm in now. So, you know, um, a situation where I can come into work every day, I really enjoy what I'm doing, um, you know, to, to be an owner of this business, to hire the great team that we do, to have built like a product that, you know, I really passionately believe in, that people are buying, that people want to use. I would have looked at this and been like, oh, you've made it, that's amazing. But then now sitting here today, I kind of look at, look at, you know, where I believe that I can take it and the numbers that I believe that we can, we can hit. But I know that when I get to that point, that, that I'll then be looking for the next challenge and I'll be looking, well, where can I take it now? And I think that for me, something that I've learned is less so thinking about where, at what point have I made it, but more having an appreciation for where I am now, but in an excitement and enthusiasm for where I'm going. And then that, that means that I can enjoy the current moment and I can enjoy what I've created and I can feel really proud and I can feel really happy for that, but also have that one eye on, well, this is where I want it to be and I can be better and I can get it there and these are the things that I need to do to, to get it there. So I'm not sure I know the answer to that yet. I know I could answer, you know, what, you know, in the next five years, what I want that to look like and where we should be and what that should look like for me personally. Um, I could probably even answer that for, you know, the next seven to ten years. Um, you know, obviously lots, lots changes and I imagine that vision will, you will improve and change over, over time. But I think my dreams keep getting bigger. So I'd, I think if we had this conversation in five years' time, my dream and vision will be hopefully even bigger and it would have changed even, even more. So I don't think that I will ever know and I don't think there'll ever come a moment where I'd be like, I've made it because I enjoy learning, I improve, enjoy improving, I enjoy trying to make something better. But I guess in order to be happy and content in life, also having that recognition that actually what I've already built is already really great and actually I can enjoy that and I can look at that and I can still feel really proud even though I want it to be so much more. You're, um, you're creating your own life. You're yeah. creating your own identity. Um, is there a relationship with your family from um, your younger years? No, sadly. No. I was about to say sadly not, but actually I don't. I don't believe that. I think I say sadly not because that's like the society expectation that yeah. I would be sad about that. But I, I have a family. I have close friends. They're not a biological family, but I do have a family that I'm very, you know, close to. The Christmas dinner and all of those, you know, very nice family things. I'm have. I'm very fortunate enough to have, I guess, a family that I've chosen, not a family that I was that I was born with, and that are supportive, that will encourage me. And um, I think something that I've learned in life is that it's, it's okay. It's okay yeah. not to have not to have that family. It's okay not to have that perfect nuclear family that society kind of like drums into you from a young age. It's like you know, this is the most important important thing. It's okay not to have that 
perfect Hollywood movie family that, you know, and cheesy matching Christmas jumpers and the whole shebang. It's okay not to have that. That's fine. A bit like awkward there, Jacob. We're wearing matching jumpers. <laughs> <laughs> but actually the most important thing is building the life that, that you want. And actually for me, having actually a period in time where I was very independent was important to me and that's made me feel confident and that made me feel comfortable. And now, you know, I'm lucky to have, you know, people that I call family and, you know, okay, not biologically, not by blood, but they are family to me that have, that have supported, supported me. And um, even for people that don't have that, it's, it's okay. It's fine. And I guess anyone that watches this that is maybe struggling because they don't have that family and they don't have what people tell them that you're supposed to have to be happy, that's fine. Go pave your own journey. Go make your own life. Go find the people that will support you, that will tell you that you're brilliant, that will encourage you and make you think that you can achieve anything that you want because you can. And people that make you feel great is what's most important. It doesn't matter if it's family, if it's not. Um, your, your tribe is out there. Your people are out there. Sometimes it just takes longer to find if you're not, you know, born into a family that give you that. And that's fine. That's cool. That is such a powerful <laughs> message. And thank you for saying that. Um, my last question uh, would be to the people, to your, your tribe and anybody who knows you, how would you like to be remembered? I think I want to be remembered for... I guess for trying to make the best possible life. I want to be remembered for being kind. That's, I think we all challenge, are challenged with that sometimes when life is stressful for being our kindest selves. So I try and challenge myself with that every single day. I want to be remembered for being, I guess, determined, for always kind of trying to achieve my goals for always striving to do that um, and I'd like to be remembered for always admitting when I'm wrong because that is something that I struggle with and I don't always do that and sometimes I'm so kind of like know what I want and where I'm going that I'm not very good at actually taking a step back and thinking oh, I think I'm wrong there I think I can do better like I'd like to be remembered for failing but then actually learning from that and getting better because something that I have learned in the last six years since having this business is that actually failure is good, failure is okay. When you fail, you learn, you get better, you improve. So the more I can do that, I think the better I'll get. It's so true. And Tanisha, I'd love to thank you for sharing your story You're here. You're welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. You know, it's been a pleasure. It's been fascinating talking to you. And without a doubt, your story will inspire many others. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Remember to like, share and subscribe to help spread the stories of small businesses across the UK. Have you got a story to share? Reach out to us on ukbf.co.uk. And you never know, you could be the next UKBF story.